the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Governor Gretchen Whitmer says most of the state's COVID restrictions are now going to end abruptly in little more than a month. We'll talk about why she has reached this conclusion with Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Then we're going to continue our look at the Atlantic Magazine series, Inheritance, with a piece about the roots our modern economy finds in American slavery. That's all next on Detroit Today, the first the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. After more than a year of really heavy restrictions meant to limit the transmission of COVID-19, most of those restrictions are now going to go away pretty suddenly here in Michigan. Governor Gretchen Whitmer made the announcement yesterday that the state will fully lift outdoor capacity limits on June 1st. And then starting July 1st, Michigan will end caps on indoor gathering. This comes as nearly 57% of residents age 16 and older have gotten at least one of the vaccine shots and as the pace of vaccinations has slowed down dramatically. Here to talk about the decision to end most COVID restrictions is Michigan Public Radio Network Senior State Capital Correspondent Rick Pluta, who's been covering the state's COVID response really closely over the last year. Rick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Yeah. So I guess I was caught a little by surprise by the governor's announcement, mostly because we just heard from her recently about how we were going to see COVID restrictions rolled back. She said we had to earn that with, uh, with the percentage of, of vaccinations and set out all of these kind of benchmarks for us to, to shoot for. This seems to be a really different approach to, to, to that. Talk about what, what happened and, and why it changed. Well, uh, the CDC changed its advice is what happened. And mm-hmm. the uh, governor had rolled out this uh, you know, detailed set of uh, incentives um, to try and reach particular vaccination rates. She called it VAC to normal. And uh, then the CDC basically, you know, more or less declared emergency over. And so uh, the state had to quickly change uh, its plans and, uh, you know, uh, lifted the orders in uh, two, uh, you know, in two stages. And so it was the CDC's change in, in approach that inspired this then. But, but what are public health professionals saying about this? I've heard a lot of people be very skeptical about uh, the CDC's approach, which seemed uh, to contravene the, the, the approach that it had had before. Uh, what are they saying about this? Well, I, we're hearing very divided opinions that there are a lot of um, healthcare professionals, epidemiologists who are saying that this is a recipe for disaster, that uh, we're not there yet and, you know, we, we shouldn't pretend that we are. However, um, what the Whitmer administration is basically acknowledging, a reality that, that a lot of other professionals uh, are also acknowledging, which is that we're past the stage where the state, where Governor Whitmer, um, the MDHHS, can order their way out of the crisis, that basically everyone who's willing to get a vaccine has one available to them. Mm -hmm. And so now it's a persuasion campaign that, uh, you know, the people who need to be reached are the vaccine skeptical and the um, basically the people who are saying no to vaccines right now. So this is basically a messaging campaign at this point to try and reach that latter group. So the business community in the state has been really hard hit by COVID and by COVID restrictions. They have not been huge fans of the governor's uh, approach to this. I would imagine this is going to make them much happier. 
Um, oh, sure, that there are business groups who've been saying that we've followed orders and, you know, I mean, now we know what the right thing is to do and, uh, you know, we can do them. So give us the freedom to, you know, give us the freedom to do so. And that's basically been the Republican message, which is let individuals and let businesses prove that they're responsible. Uh, what is uh, the political context here? I, I had a conversation. The political context <laughs> is one that, uh, you know, it, it's this thing about like the legislature will have a say in um, any future orders that might come down the pike is it, it's an off ramp for the governor to end this standoff with the legislature and, you know, try and move to the next stage, which is figuring out how to use uh, COVID emergency funds, that there's this issue of uh, MIOSHA orders. MIOSHA had already said that it's going to enforce the CDC guidelines. The governor won't try to make some of these emergency orders uh, permanent, and that gave them something to um, give away in the bargaining and gave the Republicans something to declare victory over. And so it kind of it just it just resets the board uh, to see if in the next month or so they can uh, the Republican leaders and the governor's office can actually get into a room together and bargain. So I did see that Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky said this morning that he thought this was a, a pretty positive step, that it was a gesture to to suggest that the governor is willing to work with the, the legislature is a really different tone than what we've heard from him uh, recently. Yeah, it is a very different tone. And it was, you know, it, it was a bad thing that they weren't getting into a room together and uh, bargaining. And, you know, the governors, or I'm sorry, the uh, Republican leaders in the legislature said that they will now allow the governor and budget director Dave Masseron in the room to negotiate a budget. But there wasn't going to be a budget without them there anyway. And, you know, the reverse is true as, as well, is the governor has a certain amount of emergency powers, but she has to get the legislature to send her a budget and one that's acceptable enough that it's not going to be rife with uh, line item vetoes. Yeah. I'm talking with Rick Pluta, who is a senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. We're talking about the big news yesterday. Governor Gretchen Whitmer coming out and saying that she is ready to almost fully roll back the COVID-19 restrictions here in the state starting June 1st. She's going to fully lift outdoor capacity limits. And then on July 1st, uh, Michigan will end caps on indoor gatherings. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. What do you think of this latest development in the saga of COVID restrictions here in, in Michigan. Uh, what do you make of Governor Whitmer's sudden decision to ease most of these restrictions by the 1st of July? Also think about how close that is to the 4th of July and what, what kind of uh, celebrations we'll see, I think, across the state uh, because of this announcement. Uh, are you excited about the prospect of life returning to much more normalcy than, I think, just a few weeks weeks ago we were expecting to be able to have this summer. Uh, also give us a call and let us know if you're a little uneasy about all of this, how quickly it's moving and how it sort of tracks with the rate of people getting vaccinations, which has really slowed, uh, not just here in Michigan, but uh, in, in lots of other places. It seems like all of the people who plan to get vaccinated have probably done that and we're nowhere near that 70 percent number uh, that they talk about for for herd immunity. Um, also, do you trust that people will behave in ways that will keep us all safe after these restrictions uh, are lifted? Do you trust that people who aren't vaccinated will continue to wear masks, for instance, which is what the CDC is saying they should be doing? Uh, do you think people will start will keep distancing and doing some of the other things? that we've seen, uh, e even after the, the restrictions are gone. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Rick, I, I want to uh, talk about what effect this might have on the negotiations over 
the money, the big money that's coming to the state from the federal government, which has that's been locked up in in the budget negotiations and these other things. But it's kind of a separate issue. I mean, uh, I, I think a lot of folks in Lansing, a lot of Democrats thought this is, uh, you know, this is an easy, uh, an easy decision to make to spend money that we're getting uh, from the federal government. Republicans had said, no, 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 no. Uh, we want to we want to have real say over that as well, uh, and have been holding it up. Does this loosen that uh, that logjam as well? Um, we'll see what happens, but I think there is one thing. It's it's been largely untalked about, but I think this may be a seminal moment in this period before the elections in uh, the governor and Republicans and legislature learning how to deal with their, with each other. And it's kind of an ancient technique in, in legislating. But what they did here was they struck a bargain or you know the beginnings of a bargain that allowed everyone to declare some measure of victory. And what we've seen before when these things have come down is that it's been zero sum, that I can't win unless they lose. And now they all I mean, they're they're all getting their own little uh, little victory dance, and we will see if going forward, you know, when there are actual dollars on the line, and just kind of a, as opposed to this metaphysical statement uh, that we're going to go back to talking, whether or not they can do the same thing, cut deals with actual dollars in play, um, with long-term policy implications. And come up with something where they can all say, you know, they can all go back to their constituencies and say, I won. But this does seem to reset the board with, um, you know, the, the greater possibility of that happening. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019. Call and tell us how you're feeling about Governor Whitmer saying She's going to get rid of the COVID-19 restrictions that we've been living under for a really long time here in Michigan. Uh, give us a call. Tell us what are some of the first things you might go do once these restrictions are lifted. I know a lot of people have been uh, eagerly going back to normal life in the last couple of weeks as, as some of the restrictions have fallen and, and we've gotten better news about uh, about the, the state of COVID in the state and the country, uh, but but give us an idea of what your life might look like uh, come July first when the governor says she's going to lift indoor uh, uh, restrictions, uh, outdoor restrictions, going to go away on June first. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, and we'll work you into the show that way. Let's start with Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Um, one of one of the things I'm I, I've been thinking about is I think this is a lot of uh, political pull because of the elections. When we're looking at the upcoming elections, the one of the things that the Democrats have a lot of pushback from is a lot of their, the local restrictions that we've 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 had it we've uh, we've had, and I think a lot of it is going to with a lot of the pull of the upcoming elections, especially the gubernatorial race. Yeah. Uh, Chris, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of people looking at the calendar thinking the same thing. Uh, Rick, I, I had said earlier this week, someone was asking me about uh, about James Craig and his possible run for governor as a, as a Republican and whether I thought he had uh, much of a chance. And, and I said, one of the things that really mattered, I think, uh, is how fresh in people's minds the controversy over COVID restrictions is. If uh, by next summer people are still kind of fresh and and angry about those restrictions or think it was mishandled, I think the governor could have a harder time uh, than than if, for instance, those restrictions went away this uh, this summer and and we uh, sort of got past that. Uh, that's a pretty cynical. Analysis, I think, uh, but but it but is that politics. Mean it's wrong. <laughs> That's right. It is politics. That's the way it works. So <laughs> so is Chris right that this is this is driven in some way by by those political concerns? Well, yes, but I mean, of course, that you're you're never going to take the politics out of politics. 
you know, which is, you know, the art of using power, among other things, it's the art of using power and persuasion to achieve particular goals. Um, but looking ahead to, um, you know, the, the, the upcoming elections is we're going to see a lot more traditional campaigning and a lot more traditional forms of persuasion. We're going to see people going out and, you know, doing the handshaking, in-person fundraisers, in-person speeches uh, and events, and a lot more of the spectacle that goes with uh, uh, politics will be out there. And that matters in this respect because that means that there's going to be a lot more, you know, one-on-one or in-person interactions where you're going to have the governor's Republican opponent, whoever it is, um, you know, trying to fire up the base with these now, you know, months past uh, restrictions that they're going to try and get people worked up around them, you know, about them again, when, you know, maybe they're feeling a little bit more optimistic, uh, the governor will be able to claim, um, you know, to the roar of the crowd or however you know you want to describe it, that um, regardless of how the details played out, that overall the restrictions worked and, you know, we are now safe from COVID and the wild card being, of course, um, variants and the possibility of surges because not enough people have gotten vaccinated. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Emily on Twitter says, what about young kids? I've got three toddlers and it's hard for me to take them anywhere when no one else is wearing a mask, but they're still required to. How do I know that unmasked people are vaccinated and how do I keep my kids safe? Uh, Those are great questions, Emily. And uh, I I expect that over the next couple of weeks, we may be hearing more from uh, not the governor, but the medical public health professionals, right, Uh, Rick, about, about how all this should work. Right. How many people are out there who will either refuse to get vaccinated or will simply say they're vaccinated um, when they're not? And right now there is a debate in the legislature over outlawing what's being called vaccine passports, you know, some kind of uh, proof that you're vaccinated that would be issued by the state, state state-issued vaccine passports. Now, no such thing has been proposed, and so we don't know what something like that would uh, look like. But yeah, that, you know, the question of, of being able to show verified proof where um, a, a, a private enterprise, a business, or, you know, maybe even, um, you know, some other entity would want to know something like that. Like, you know, right now, you know, students who are, you know, heading to school mm-hmm. have to, when they're being enrolled, have to show that they've been inoculated against, um, you know, certain transmittable diseases. Uh, will we ever see a point where, you know, COVID and its successors are included in that? Right now, there's a lot of resistance in the legislature to doing something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, it appears Governor Whitmer is following the rules of the CDC. Unfortunately, people will always find something to complain about. So it doesn't matter what she does. She's going to always have critics on uh, both sides. Let's go to uh, Anna. Anna in Lake Orion. Welcome to the show. Thanks. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Um, a little annoyed, though. I'm, I'm kind of irritated that we've Put in our time. I'm a mom of four. My kids are 11 and under, ranging to a one-year-old, and so they're not able to be vaccinated yet. I was one of the first to be vaccinated. Kind of excited for that freedom, but without the mask mandate, my kiddos still can't, you know, come with me out to the grocery store and things like that. I'm still trying to protect them, so mm. it's a little irritating to have put in the work and now and now still having to sit at home and wait for uh, wait for their vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Anna, I quickly want to ask you: Were were you someone who supported Governor Whitmer when she was running in 2018? You were. Um, Yeah, I'm an educator. She was our, you know, she was our nominee. So I was really excited that she was elected, and I've supported her the whole time too. I just feel like we're we're I'm I'm a little edgy about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I appreciate the call and, and the thoughts. Rick, that's the flip side of this, I think, is that I think parents and in particular mothers who really supported uh, Governor Whitmer might might have an adverse uh, reaction to, to what she's doing now. 
and that's a key constituency for her next year as well. Uh, oh, sure. I mean, you know, I mean, my teenagers are vaccinated, but uh, you know, for people with kids who are, you know, still not vaccinated, I mean, it's it's got to be frightening, at least, you know, not knowing whether or not, not just whether people are vaccinated, but you know, whether or not we're at that place that where we're considered essentially, you know, fully safely vaccinated that, uh, you know, 70 percent and uh, uh, above mark. And right now, under these policies, including the CDC recommendations, you know, where we're moving in terms of the state's COVID restrictions, that's that's an unknown. Mm. Okay, Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Always great to catch up with you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Stephen. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear from New Orleans-based writer Anya Groner about her new piece about how Louisiana's petroleum industry profits from exploiting historic inequalities and shows how slavery laid the groundwork for environmental racism. It is one of the newest installations in the Atlantic's Inheritance Project, and we're going to talk about it next. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to spend the rest of the hour today talking about one of the latest pieces in Chapter 2 of the Atlantic's Inheritance series, which explores black history in the spaces and places where memories live. Anya Groner is a writer based in New Orleans, and in her piece titled One Oppressive Economy Begets Another, she explores how Louisiana's petroleum industry profits from exploiting historic inequalities and shows how slavery laid the groundwork for modern environmental racism. Anya, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. So you start by telling the story of uh, Sharon Levine, a teacher who's working and living near the Sunshine Project in Louisiana. Can you talk about this particular project and how it's tied to major environmental issues in that area? Yeah, so Sharon Levine is a special education teacher. She was born in St. James Parish, and um, raised, was raised there and uh, lives there with several of her family members. And she lives two miles down the road from the Sunshine Project, which is a proposed plastics project, a proposed plastics plant that would, if built, be one of the largest plastic plants in the world. Um, so she was teaching when she heard about this and she said, it hurt me like an arrow through my body when she heard that this was gonna be built so close to her home. Um, it's a 2,300 acre project. And what it would do is it would have 14 unique facilities. 10 of them would uh, be petrochemical plants and they would build, they would make polymer, ethyl, ethylene glycol, polyethylene, polypropylene. And those are the ingredients found in antifreeze and drainage pipes and a variety of single use plastics. And in doing so, um, this, the plants would produce 13 million tons of greenhouse gases a year, which is the equivalent of three and a half coal plants, you know, just two miles down that road from her home. Um, and it would also emit a variety of carcinogens, so ethylene oxide and benzene. And this is particularly troubling because the air that she breathes is already some of the most toxic air in the country. Um, the, the region between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, it's an 85 mile stretch of land that follows the Mississippi River um, and it's often called Cancer Alley. So since the 1980s, um, residents there have been documenting really high rates of miscarriage and high rates of cancer because there's so many petrochemical plants and oil refineries in the area. Um, right now, more than 200 are operating in that, that tiny region. And they're largely, they're operating where sugar plantations used to be. Yeah. I mean, it's that tie 
to history in that region, I think, that really brings uh, these stories to, to even bigger life, that, uh, that it was slavery and uh, the historic inequality that exists uh, in, our, in our society that laid the groundwork for all of this. Absolutely. So um, if you if you overlay a map of southern Louisiana's petrochemical and petroleum plants with archival maps of the area's plantations, what you'll see is that in many cases, the property lines match up. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is because the sugar plantations, which operated all along the Mississippi River, needed exactly the same same things that the petrochemical plants need. They need large acreage, and they also really benefit from having such easy access to some of the world's busiest shipping lanes along the Mississippi River. The other thing, um, the other reason that they, they share this same geography is that when the Civil War ended, as part of Reconstruction, the Freedmen's Bureau started giving um, land grants to Black Maroons and formerly enslaved people along the lower Mississippi River. And what they would do is they'd parcel out these little slivers of large plantations and they'd give them to extended family groups. Um, and that was part of reparations. And then they'd return the bulk of the land to the white owners who'd, who'd owned the land during slavery. And it mm. kind of created this this pattern along the Mississippi River where you'd see this large blocks of land owned by a single owner, and then these very small historic free towns um, that largely have black inhabitants. And so when the petrochemical industry started moving in in the early 20th century, when oil was found in the region, um, they would just buy from these single owners. And so now when you drive along River Road, which is the road that goes on either side of the Mississippi, you'll see sugar cane um, and you'll see some old plantations that have been fixed up and are now tourist sites. And then all of it is dwarfed by these giant petrochemical industries that have um, flaring smokestacks and big cylinders, um, stadium-sized cylinders that are holding tanks for various kinds of chemicals and big yellow mounds of sulfur um, and those kinds of things. Hmm. So, so back to uh, Sharon Levine, uh, uh, talk more about what she's doing to try to, to essentially to defend, I guess, her home from this kind of, uh, uh, this kind of industrial destruction, uh, damage that, that they want to do. Yeah. So Sharon, um, Sharon actually retired not long after finding out that the Sunshine Project was um, was under under development um, because she wanted to devote her life full time really to stopping the stopping it from being built. So not long after finding out about it, she organized a community meeting in her den um, with 10 neighbors and they formed an organization called Rise St. James. And within a year, two of those members had died. Um, one had died of cancer, the other had died of respiratory distress um, and both conditions, Sharon links to the pollution that already exists in the air. So really she's kind of got a mandate at this point, right? Because she's she's lost two close friends um, and everyone you talk to in that region has lost relatives and friends to cancer and to respiratory ailments. Um, the, the level of carcinogens that are already in the air because of these petrochemical plants is so high and some reports are, are, are coming out now saying that if Formosa was to build the Sunshine Project, the level of carcinogens in the air would triple. Hmm. Um, so so it's, it's truly, um, the, for Sharon Levine, it feels like a, a matter of life or death. Um, so they've been organizing marches and she's involved in several lawsuits. Um, and then one of the, the most interesting things that she's done is um, on Juneteenth, she actually held a commemoration ceremony for the slaves who'd worked on the plantations where Formosa is trying to build on the Buena Vista mm. plantation. And, and she went at some point to, to, to try to visit the burial site of her ancestors who were enslaved and learned that their bodies may have been buried on this proposed building site for this, this giant Formosa uh, plant. Um, it, it just makes this story so complex and, you know, it, it kind of folds back on itself several times, the, the, the ways in which uh, the inequality uh, and the injustice uh, plays out in, in, in one person's life. It's, it's hard to imagine what it would look like if you sort of 
uh, took a, an even broader view of of everyone who lives in this in this uh, in this area. How many ways? How many times? Uh, this kind of inequality has affected their lives. Absolutely, because there's um, the story I wrote is really focusing on just this one project, the Sunshine Project. But there's 200 of these petrochemical plants, and nearly every single one is built on a plantation. So, so in every single instance, you know, there's there's grave sites um, on the land. Some of them have been excavated. Some have not. Um, in Louisiana, descendants have the right to visit um, grave sites of their ancestors. So it was two years after Sharon Levine heard about the Sunshine Project when she learned that some graves had been found on the Sunshine Project's um, construction site, and those graves had been fenced off. And she tried she tried to visit them, um, and the first time she tried to visit, she was told that she wasn't allowed onto the site and for most of the company behind um, the Sunshine Project really fought the right of descendants to visit because they said the graves that had been found they had no proof that they were um, they had no proof about the ethnicity of the bones Um, but really there's so much historical evidence that that these would be graves of enslaved people so that's something that that local judges have sided with Rise St. James and they allowed them permission to come on the property for the for Juneteenth, and Juneteenth is the day that commemorates um, when Union soldiers came to Galveston, Texas, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, to let people there, enslaved people there, know that they were free. Mm-hmm. So this is a really historic moment, and I think it really ties it all together um, because here you have people who are currently facing environmental racism, right? Because the, the petrochemical plants are, are literally in their backyard and they're honoring their ancestors who they haven't been allowed to see um, and even whose existence has been has been hidden from them um, because it wasn't made public right away that those grave sites were on the Sunshine Project property. Mm, yeah. I'm talking with Anya Groner. She's a writer based in New Orleans. She teaches writing at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. And her latest piece in The Atlantic is titled One Oppressive Economy Begets Another. And it's part of that publication series called Inheritance, which is taking a look at uh, black history in the spaces and places where memories live. Uh, We're talking about uh, environmental racism, environmental inequality, uh, as it exists in uh, a, a part of Louisiana that has a real historical connection to slavery, but in modern times uh, is playing out the same kind of inequality uh, through modern capitalism. Um, We would love if you want to join the conversation if you gave us a call and let us know how you see environmental racism playing out in your community here in southeast Michigan. I can think just off the top of my head uh, of lots of places that we see these same kinds of tensions uh, in our in our region. Uh, do you feel like the last year has brought more attention to the issues that relate to this and to health outcomes and the way that they are really different for communities of color um, when these kinds of uh, environmental hazards are located uh, in our communities. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and uh, and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to uh, get you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, and you write that the concentration of industry in this part of Louisiana is enabled uh, by zoning laws. Uh, typically, land use plans separate residential areas from industrial ones, but in 2014, uh, the St. James Parish Council voted to change river adjacent sections, the fourth and fifth districts, from residential to residential slash future industrial. And this is really similar to what we see here in in southeast Michigan in a place called Southwest Detroit, uh, specifically the 48217 uh, zip code, which is kind of the dog leg uh, of, of southern Detroit, a very heavily industrial area. It's considered the state's most polluted zip code. It's home to our only refinery and a really big trucking area. Um, I, I guess I, I bring that up to make the point that these are not just 
issues we see in places like Louisiana, where they are tied directly uh, to to the history of slavery, uh, but but in places like Detroit, where um, where different dynamics essentially have produced the same outcomes. Absolutely, yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with representation and um, local government. So the land use plan that was passed in St. James Parish, um, it really took the the two black districts within St. James Parish and labeled them future industrial. And if you really think about what that is, residential slash future industrial, um, one environmentalist I talked to pointed out, that's really a plan to wipe these communities off the map Mm -hmm. because they're residential now, but they're, they're planning to be fully industrial. Um, So for Sharon Levine, for instance, already there are nine plants in close proximity to her house. Um, You can smell them when you go visit her. There's kind of like a rotten egg smell. Um, She calls in all the time to EPA to report the different smells. And then if the Sunshine Project goes in, there would be 10 additional plants. Um, And that's all just in close proximity. So, yeah, so, so, so in some ways this is, it's really concentrated um, right by the black communities. And that has to do with how the the parish council has voted on these particular issues. Um, And it's really pushed the industry right into the black communities. And, and when you talk about the political power that makes the decisions about who will, who will be able to do what with, uh, with this area, how much political power have, the African-Americans who live there been able to gain over over time? I mean, is it a place where uh, where where there's progress uh, and and representation that didn't used to exist in the past? Um, You know, in in some ways, yes, but I actually it's not always coming through the parish council. I think for Rise St. James in particular, the way that they've been able to um, really build an incredible amount of momentum behind their campaign isn't by going through their local government. It's by going directly to news sources, right? And so they're they're kind of bypassing, in some ways bypassing their local government and just making this a national issue and even an international issue. So right now, congressmen are pressuring uh, President Biden to just um, revoke the permits for the Sunshine Project, the human rights Commission for the United Nations has weighed in and say this is they're saying this is an area where reparations still are owed to the people who live there because the environmental racism is so directly tied to the legacy of racism hmm. or the legacy of slavery. So it's yes, there's there's more um, cultural capital and political capital than it used to be, but I don't I don't believe it's coming from the local government, and it's certainly not coming from the state government. Um, the state government in this case is very much supporting the Sunshine Project because they say it's bringing in tax revenue and also bringing in jobs. Mm-hmm. For the, oh, go ahead. No, no, you got, you got that's, that's good. Uh, go ahead and finish. Oh, yeah. So the, the job, so the Sunshine Project estimates that it'll bring in 8,000 um, ancillary jobs. So those are jobs in supporting industries like construction and um, the service industry and then 1,200 direct jobs. And those are jobs that actually have a have a good salary. They pay about eighty five thousand a year, wow. which is three, three times the median income um, in the fifth district, which is where the project will be built. The problem um, for Sharon Levine and for her community is that industry rarely hires locally. So there's a there's a big history of industry um, importing people from out of state to to do those jobs, those high paying jobs. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that there, there's a lot of training required to do those kinds of jobs. And that training isn't offered in Welcome, Louisiana or in these small free towns where people live. So there, so even though these jobs, you know, on paper, it looks like, okay, well, this has to at least be an economic win. Um, the people who live there are rarely benefiting economically from those industries. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with uh, Anya Groner. We also want to continue to hear from you, uh, both on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Call and talk to us about where you see environmental racism playing out here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, We'll hear from Richard next. If you want to join him again, uh, give us a call. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you joined us. I'm talking right now with uh, Anya Groner. She's a writer who's based in New Orleans. She teaches writing at the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, and her latest piece is in The Atlantic and is titled, One Oppressive Economy Begets Another, and it's about the legacy of slavery and inequality uh, along the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge and the ways in which the modern industry that has grown up there takes advantage of that history of inequality uh, to perpetuate that inequality, but also to uh, perpetuate real environmental hazards for the people who live there. It's a petroleum-based industry that you'll find along the banks of the Mississippi in that region. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know about examples that you can see in our region of environmental racism and inequality, uh, the ways in which communities of color are disproportionately impacted by uh, dirty industries. Uh, If you think, you don't have to think that hard, I think, to, (laughs) to come up with Uh, some really glaring examples here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we will try to include you uh, that way. Let's go to uh, Richard, Richard in Detroit. Welcome to the show. Uh, Greetings, Stephen. Great show as always. Oh, thank you. You know, there's a verse in the Bible which says, the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Hmm. Uh, I read that to mean it's not just the fact that they lack money, but it's how we treat them, you know, how we destroy them, how we abuse them and exploit them. And just listening to this story, my gosh, I mean, not only are these folks, um, you know, being forced to live through uh, toxins in their air, but the jobs that are promised uh, being brought to the area aren't even promised to them. Hmm. I mean... You know, I, I obviously when you talk about what uh, what you can look at here locally. I mean, you can't take a drive down 75 South and just open your window. You don't have to open the windows. Keep them closed and just smell. Yeah. You know, right next to the bridge. I mean, of course, those are the sorts of things. I mean, you remember the the you know talk about the jobs issue, Marathon Oil, when they expanded and they you know brought whatever toxins and everything else to bring it to the area. Of course, the promise of jobs is there, but. Nothing, nothing realized for Detroit jobs. Nothing yeah. started, right? I mean, yeah. up, I think we have less than 10 people in that plant now um, from the city of Detroit. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's a glaring, I mean, you know, it's, it's just a glaring example of how capitalism and, and we as society allow folks to mistreat those who, you know, otherwise would, you know, it shouldn't be treated that way. Yeah. Um yeah, and it's just a shame. I mean, one is a, I guess it's a shameless plug. Uh, I'm, you know, as you know, I'm a member of the Charter Commission. We have mm-hmm. commissions that volunteer commissions that we set up to look at things like what do the, what does city government do to make sure to promote health, and how are all of the government actions going to make sure that we don't get in a situation like this? The Environmental Justice Commission we we established another mm-hmm. volunteer committee. So I mean, there are a lot of things that we specifically looked at in the Charter to try to deal with these very issues. It's just it's just really painful to hear how frequently it's still happening, especially on slave land. It's just a shame. Yeah, yeah. Richard, I really appreciate the, the call and the, uh, the insights there. Um, you know, Anya, this, this idea of slavery setting the pattern for, uh, for this kind of activity 
you know, gets at the it gets at the roots of questions about capitalism. As Richard was saying, this is the system that that we that we live in. Do do you draw a direct line in 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 your mind between uh, the economic system of slavery and this kind of uh, industry uh, and the way it relates to the to the people in that region? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think. In, in a lot of ways, it, it goes back to the idea of some bodies literally being valued more than other bodies, right? Some bodies being protected from certain kinds of labor or certain kinds of chemicals mm. and other bodies being forced into that kind of labor or being forced into proximity to, to chemicals that they know will um, harm them and make them sick and ultimately might even kill them. Um, so I think, I think absolutely... It's, it's a direct line. And then when you look at the role of the government in it, um, which the caller mentioned, um, the government in some ways is, you know, is profiting off of and supporting these industries in, in both scenarios, mm -hmm. right? The government supported slavery. It was legal, right? And then, and then now the government is also um, creating zoning laws and those kinds of things to enable these sorts of industries to be located in poor communities um, that that don't always have the resources to fight. Although I think it's it's incredible how much local citizens can can do um, to oppose these these kinds of developments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Richard, thanks very much for the call uh, and the wonderful insights. Let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show. Great conversation. I really enjoyed your earlier segment and just how the plantations uh, turned to uh, other uh, problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, on the east side, we have a lot of industry. We always have. We uh, we have a like a recycling place south of Jefferson, east of or west of uh, Jefferson Chalmers that uh, has exploded several times and had to evacuate the neighborhood and and such. Uh, and I don't. I think too often jobs are tied to all these industries. And quite frankly, I've never wanted to work for the automotive. My dad worked there for 40 years at Chrysler, and I've never aspired to go work on an assembly line or anything with that. But what I think we could do when these industries move in is make sure that the, the taxes are being paid, make sure that uh, that things come from this uh, developments like a. a a recreation center on the east side that's greatly lacking, uh, something we've worked on for 25 years here. And I think those kind of things that uh, draw people into the city and make sure that the air, there's air uh, monitors and, and that kind of stuff on, on the factories. Uh, I think we just get lost in this whole thing. It has to be tied to Detroit jobs. There's just not that many people living in Detroit anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John, I, I really appreciate you calling in and especially talking about the things that are going on over on the east side, which I think don't get as much attention in this context as what happens in Southwest, because Southwest is so heavily industrial. And, you know, there's such a long history there of of, you know, fighting against uh, the, 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 the expand the expansion of that industrial uh, footprint. Um, people don't think about the east side a, a, as much, but but you're right that uh, um, that there's there's a, a lot that goes on there um, as well. Um, you know, uh, Anya, I, I I wonder what you make of the the comparison between I guess cities like Detroit, which are post-industrial uh, and and struggling to to find economic new economic footing, and then turning to to uh, to industries like this and rural areas like uh, southern louisiana which have that uh, that slave history um uh but but are doing the same things it almost is like uh they they've uh, arrived at the same point through really different uh paths but it leaves the people in both places uh really struggling with the same issues yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's exactly right. And um, I, I think in both places, you know, there's this narrative that the people can either have jobs or they can have environmental regulation, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. one comes at the expense of the other. And 
you know, the more that we talk about climate change um, and the incredible devastation that our that our planet is facing, I think the more we see that that actually we need to create a new narrative, right? We need to create a narrative where we're creating jobs that are good for the environment or at the very least not damaging it, right? Um, so I think we're a little trapped in the way that we're thinking about these kinds of about about the kinds of development that are possible, right? And I think even some of President Biden's infrastructure plan starts to address that, right? Mm-hmm. That that we can clean up the environment or we can create infrastructure that's good for people, that's good for the environment, um, and that these things aren't somehow naturally in opposition to each other. That's a narrative that we've we've gotten because it's been a narrative that's been good for industry. Yeah. Okay, Anya Groner, it was really great to have you here uh, to discuss uh, your piece and to discuss this issue. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to be here. And you can check out Anya's piece, One Oppressive Economy Begets Another, at the Atlantic's website. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. I will be back on Monday, and I hope you will, too. We're going to talk with one of our favorite guests here on Detroit Today. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is going to join the program. Detroit Today was produced by Jake Neer and Anna Marie Seisling. The program director is Joan Isabella. Associate producers are Nora Ryan, Dan Netter, and Molly Ryan. And our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music was created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.